Thank you for listening to Lone Star Community Radio. This program was broadcasted and recorded live from the LSCR studios in downtown Conroe, Texas. Lone Star Community Radio is supported by listeners like you. Donate and sponsor today. For more information on getting involved with Lone Star Community Radio, contact us at lscrstudios at gmail.com or visit us online at www.irlonestar.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today. I'm your host, Dan Zentek. We talk about current issues facing law enforcement, crime scene, and forensic investigation. Uh, it's great to be back in the studio. We've had a little bit of downtime as we move to the new studio over here. So a couple of updates. Uh, just so you know, some uh, conferences and things that are coming up uh, related to uh, crime scene and such. So the big IAI National or International Conference is going to be July 31st through August 6th. Registration is open for all of these conferences. Make sure that uh, if you're going to go to any of them, you want to get uh, your seat and get those hotels confirmed pretty quick because I know they sell out pretty quick, and uh, right now there's special pricing on them. Uh, the Texas Division of the IAI, uh, which is Crime Scene uh, Organization for Texas, uh, they're going to meet in San Marcos, or excuse me, San Antonio, San Antonio this year, uh, and that's going to be June 7th through uh, uh, <coughs> through June 10th. So uh, that's again going to be in San Antonio. That's open registration right now. If you're a member of the IEI or TDIEI, uh, then it's cheaper for you to go, so make sure you have your membership. Uh, tape it for your property and evidence people. Uh, that's going to be October, October 18th through the 21st, and that is going to be in San Marcos. Uh, so anyway, those are three conferences coming up. Make sure that uh, you sign up for those and get ahead of the game so you can get the right hotel fees and such. But today, uh, we have Janet Teague as a guest uh, who has spent a lifetime career in, in law enforcement. We're going to talk about some of those experiences and uh, how that has led uh, to a ministry and chaplain and, and all many things that she's done in her life following law enforcement. So, Janet, uh, welcome uh, to the program. And so, just to start with, so how long were you in law enforcement? I mean, obviously, I guess you're still involved, but uh, overall, starting out. Well, thank you, Dan, for the invitation. It's it's such an honor to be here. And so uh, I've been in law enforcement for 30 years. And so just kind of tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, I've been married 23 years. Uh, my husband and I are pastors and founders of Hope and Healing for Warriors. And our passion is to see first responders and military win the battle against trauma. But I have served over 30 years in law enforcement, and as a police officer, I've helped people in trauma. And now I'm telling my story of being forced to confront my own trauma. My family is a family of helpers, and my husband and I, both pastors and chaplains, and we're hardwired to care for others. Uh, our daughter shares the same passion uh, of helping others and winning the battle against trauma. So back in 1992, uh, I started with MCSO. And uh, back then, I was a jail deputy, uh, then went through the academy and was promoted to uh, patrol deputy. But one of the most memorable assignments that I had when I was 
promoted to community resource officer and uh, specializing in community policing. And I remember one of the first times that I was able to meet with uh, Captain Bill Davis and Lieutenant Ollie Coward, and they'd been in their jobs for such a long time, and they were experts in the field of community policing. And I could just sit back and just listen to them, and they were just, they told such valuable lessons of, uh, for young officers back in the day to value officers, especially senior officers. But I consider myself very blessed that I've had the opportunities in my early law enforcement career to work with some of the best in Texas, if not some of the best in the United States. Well, we, we started, I guess, about close to the same time. So I, I graduated from the Academy in 91, and I started as a reserve over at uh, David Hill's office, uh, Precinct 5 at the time before going to Harris County. Uh, so policing certainly was a lot different when we got into it. Uh, oh, there, absolutely. There was not, not as much uh, technology. Um, you know, I, and you, I find it funny how, um, I'm just going to say spoiled, that, that some of the new people are with things that, that they receive. Uh, I remember my, my first patrol car uh, had a hole in the floorboard that you could see the road as you were driving. And when it got, when it rained, I got wet, not because the wind was down, but it was coming through the floorboard. In. But you were happy to have that car. You were happy to be out on patrol and, and, and all that. And, um, and again, there weren't um, as many. So your backup was far away. Uh, you had to take on a lot of a risk and things like that. Uh, you know, one thing that, um, you know, brought attention, and we're going to talk uh, about it later, but, um, you know, you recently authored a book. Uh, this just came out. When was this published? This year, right? It just came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, okay. So uh, the Bible and the badges, and again, we're going to talk about that uh, uh, later on. But one of the things that you discuss in here is... Uh, your life before law enforcement, your life during law enforcement, things like that. And, you know, you talked about uh, being helpers and, and wanting to help others. And something I find uh, very, very common in the personality of most police and paramedic and firefighters is, is the desire to help others. Uh, it's just sort of built in. Um, but your uh, history, um, as some others that I've interviewed, also comes from a, a tragic event, uh, you know, and you talk a little bit about that. If you want to share, I guess, before you got in law enforcement, right? That, yes, sir. Absolutely, that, Dan. So this was uh, you kidnapped and all the many things that we, we are afraid yes, of and that we protect against, right? Yes, sir. So, you know, before law enforcement, when I was in my early 20s, I had pulled into a local mall parking lot. And I had recently purchased a new car and was so proud of it. It was fire engine red. And had on a new pantsuit and I just later that day after what happened I I never wanted to see that car again yeah I never wanted to see those clothes again but uh, I opened the car door to get out at the mall and I bent down uh, uh, to pick up my purse and uh, I'm turning back uh, I, uh, I saw a guy who was bent down with a large steel butcher knife and um, uh, approximately a seven inch blade and uh, he demanded and he said move over and uh, he had grabbed my left arm and he got into the vehicle with me and uh, we drove down I-45 and uh, 
the knife was right against my uh, left side, and he was saying, if you try to get out, I'm going to kill you. And so as we passed other vehicles on the highway, I was, I was praying, and uh, I was just praying somebody see me, somebody notice me, look right. what's going on. Uh, doesn't anybody see me at all? And so uh, we went to a, a rural area, and he backed in, into the wooded area off the road, and he was poking the knife slightly into my side, and he had actually kidnapped me at knife point in it, against my will and uh, in my own car, and he sexually assaulted me. And it was all about power and all about control, and it happened at around 10 o'clock in the morning in broad daylight. And uh, I studied his face, and I wanted to identify him. And I was praying that I would live. Uh, and there was a Bible on the dash of the car, on my car dash. And um, we had been having a revival at my church. And so... He said, why is that up there? And uh, uh, he uh, threw it on the floorboard. Uh, and so I was praying, and he said, uh, what are you saying? What are you saying? Stop it. Stop it. And he said a lot more, but it's not worth mentioning what he said. And so uh, I was praying for the opportunity to get away. And so... Uh, then it happened, you know, he got out of the car, it happened, I had an opportunity. So I used that opportunity and I was able to escape. And uh, I could, I was naked running down the road now you and found got out, into the woods. You found out later the, this wasn't his only time to do this. You found out that he was a serial rapist and that he had absolutely, done this to others. Absolutely, I was not the first one. And so I... You know, I was running 100 miles an hour to get away, and I would stop, and I'd listen, and uh, I could hear him yelling. And so uh, I traveled through the woods, and I actually came upon a hunting cabin, and there was uh, uh, a man's overall suit, and I was able to put, put that on. And then I came across a hay field, and I could hear a tractor, and he was bailing hay. And so I waved my arms, and uh, he stopped the tractor. He saw me, and he helped me, and he took me up to his residence with his wife, and we, we called 911, and HPD came, and they had a helicopter in the air. They were trying to locate my car to locate him. And, uh, you know, uh, when I got into law enforcement, uh, a lot of officers don't want to work these kinds of crimes it's it's uh it's a hard crime to work for some officers but because i've been through it it helped me so it how helped me to help other people how long between so you said you're in your 20s so how long from your assault before you got into law enforcement it was a few years after that sir so yeah. i i did have a few years uh when when i first applied in in law enforcement I uh, applied at HPD, right. and uh, I wasn't tall enough, and I didn't weigh enough. Right. And so I had to wait until some changes were made. I'll tell you what, they don't care how tall or what you weigh now. Yeah. They, they just need people. <laughs> so, yes, sir. Um, 
So your your first time, like everybody, you went to the jail, I gather, right, for hitting the streets. Yes, sir. Um, you know, and, and something you talk about, and I know is dear dear to your heart and, and your husband's as far as the, the trauma that's afflicted. And obviously, you know, you had a physical along with mental trauma prior to you even getting in this. And uh, you all talk about PTSD. And, and it's, it's strange that it's sort of a, I'd say, a new topic when it comes to law enforcement, right? We've been, we've been talking about it with military for, for years, right? People come back from war, and, and the basic definition that, that we have and that we've been taught for PTSD is either, either some extreme stressful event, either one event can cause it, or what we have now, you know, identified dealing with law enforcement is the accumulation of whether it's small or big stressful events over the course of your whole career of steadily experiencing these things and and as i said it's it's something new in the sense that i know not even five years ago you know that uh, if you had a bad scene or whatever we i think we sort of went through stages of of getting better at it right it was like you know you had the hey if you're having trouble go talk to someone who was there you know, they, they possibly were late. Now, prior to that, it was just, suck it up. You signed up for this, right? Yeah. You know, um, so at least that has sort of changed. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think that you we're always told when you go in the academy that, like, you know, um, your life's going to change, right? You know, things are going to be different. I don't think anybody can truly explain what that means, right? Um you know, I can tell you that uh, just my own experiences of raising children and, and dealing with homicide and violent crimes and all these things and, and my friends that do the same thing that, you know, and I'm only gathering it's it's because of what we experience. But, I mean, uh, when my child calls and says they're filling up with gas, I would gather a normal parent just thinks, great, you know, I think about what you described, right? Are you being safe? Are you watching out? Is someone going to grab you or whatever? Absolutely. Someone's 10 minutes late coming home. You think of the worst because, you know, and I, I sort of give the uh, description uh, that horror movies have nothing on what we have in our head, right? We can come up with so much more of what would scare anybody because of just the soundtrack and the video track that we have from the many things we've seen and done, right? And uh, it seems as though, again, uh, y'all are sort of approaching that issue and, and making it more normal, right, in the field to try to talk about these things. You know? Absolutely. Uh, I know you talk about a, a few in your book, but what would you say, and I, mean, and I said, I know that it's many over the course of things, is there anything that I would say uh, really sticks out with you, an event that still, I don't say that you're having trouble with, but, like, it, it's that one that, you know, uh, sticks out. You know, I've had people that, and this is the one thing that also about that, is there's so many times, like, you and I could go to a scene together. It may not bother you at all on that scene. There's just something about it, you know, that may bother me and we go to a different scene and it bothers you it doesn't bother me it's you know um sometimes it's a connection i've seen one common thing is when we're dealing with child crimes the closer that your children are to the age of the person you're dealing with you know there's usually a connection of stuff you know 
um, you know, I would have to say one of one of mine is not scenes. I've I've um, I've worked many cases, many deaths. Um, I've told many parents as far as that their children are dead. I put babies in body bags, not. But the one that sticks with me is uh, when one of my deputies in Harris County was hit and getting him out the car, you know, and the last person to be there. But so what? What is that one? Well, you know, Dan, back in 1994, I was working patrol and I was in a marked unit. And shortly after the patrol shift began, I stopped at the Shell station on I-45. And, and um, um, I intended on picking up a cold drink. And I would routinely check in there on a female clerk that there had been some recent crimes there. And uh, the manager's name that, that she had a, a nickname, we called her Cricket. And so uh, Cricket introduced me to a new female employee that was just started working there that very day. And uh, little did I know that uh, this incident would change my life forever. And she told me her name, and we'll call her Miss Smith, um, that she had requested a work transfer because of her soon-to-be ex-husband had a history of repeated domestic violence and uh, several uh, attacks had been reported to HPD and Smith told me that she had been separated several months ago and that she had moved into her parents house um, in Houston for safety and she said that her husband had a, an addiction to crack cocaine and that he has hurt her so many times and that um, he had escalated and was telling her that he was going to kill her with death threats if if she didn't go back with him and so uh, she pulled out her wallet and she showed me his photo and, and she also showed me pictures of her two young children. And uh, she believed that she did not think that he knew where she had been transferred to work. And uh, she told me that her whole, this was her, the anniversary of the death of her older sister this very day was. And uh, I took down all of her information and, and uh, uh, I, her demeanor was so calm and she asked me if I'd be very careful if, if our paths crossed that she was concerned about me and she, she went on to ask me she said do you know Jesus is your savior and uh, uh, I affirmed her yes that I did and uh, little did I know this is one of the last things she was going to say one of the last things that would come out of her mouth and so I told her that I'd be passing this information on uh, to MCSO and that uh, I'd be staying close by and as much as I could possible on my shift and that I'd be passing all the information on for others as well. And uh, I told her, you know, call 911. If something happens, be sure and call 911. And I left the location and I was going to circle the area and I was watching for the subject and, and within two to three minutes I got the call and so uh, I received the dispatch through dispatch that uh, there was an armed robbery at that location and uh, dispatch said the suspect had come to the counter and pulled a, 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 a gun from a revolver from behind his waistband and uh, he had taken the clerk into his storage room at gunpoint and that uh, the uh, lady at the counter was bent down behind the counter speaking to dispatch and so I arrived in less than two minutes and um, 
I didn't didn't observe any vehicles on location. And I entered the store with my rep weapon was drawn and I saw Cricket was behind the counter on the phone and she was pointing to the back room, to the stock room, and she was whispered that two shots fired. And so I continued to the storeroom where I observed that Mrs. Smith was lying on the floor, fatally shot in the head. And the subject later identified as Mr. Smith was also lying on the floor and that he had shot himself in the head. And the gun was lying next to the subject. According to the manager, Cricket, she could only watch in horror as he took Mrs. Smith at gunpoint to the storage room. And so uh, both had died on the scene. And I requested crime scene and supervisor and, and to the incident. And um, I, I was just furious. I was just so furious at myself that she could die like this. And I didn't sleep well for a while, wishing that I could have stopped it. In my prayer, I asked God, why did her life have to be taken? Why, Lord, did it have to be this way? And why was I the one on this call? And I later heard a voice in my heart say, if not you, then who? And I was heartbreaking, and I, I still put on the uniform and still went on my shifts. And I carried a lot of weight for a while from that. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's okay to cry. It is okay to cry. And it's okay not to fight those tears. And don't try not to be strong when you're not. And there's healing in this story. For many people, there's healing in this story. So. There's been many, many times that I've told this story in church, in church classes, and it's touched so many lives. And you just never know that when you talk to someone that that could be your last words that you hear from them and how these words could affect someone else. Well, and, and as you said, I think one of the, one of the things that, again, there's, there's no rhyme or reason on why one scene bothers another but this the common link that i've found in in many is that emotional connection the fact that you knew her the fact that you had seen her kids that you had private conversations and um you know it's one of the things that that i've seen as also a common uh, among uh, the homicide texas and speaking to many uh, all over the nation um many of us enjoy our job enjoy what we do um and, and some people ask you know how do you enjoy doing that, right? Well, um, there's a common part of it. Going to the scene and processing it, using all your talents and abilities and training, where that's the fun part, right? But every single one that I know, every single homicide detective I know, uh, will always say the one part of the job they hate is the same thing, and is always dealing with the family. Because there's that emotional connection, right? Me dealing with a scene that's evidence, okay? That's me tracking a bad guy. That's me going and doing my job, okay? Uh, and the way I've described it, and me and my partner at the time, uh, we would just take turns. And believe me, it was, it was not like, hey, I want to do this. It was, you know, oh, it's, no, it's your turn to do this, right? Um, 
And the best that I describe it is when your child is born, that there's like this invisible umbilical cord, okay, that you're always connected. You're always worried. You always uh, are glad their accomplishments. There's just this connection that cannot be described except for that you have with your child. And what we do is we go and cut that umbilical cord because the moment that we arrive at that place in time, everything is still normal. After I say these words, your life will never be normal again. So those, again, you know, that's, that's the hard part is any type of emotional connection that you have to that individual. Because you can take that same thing and, of course, relate it to your life, you know, of your children, of, of your things that, that you're going through. Um, and, again, that's where I think a lot of the PTSD that you deal with is dealing with that over and over. And whether it is homicide investigators, whether it is patrol officers, many of them have to go give death notifications. Uh, but again, it's dealing with that emotional connection. Now, and by no means am I dismissing the other side of PTSD, of people getting in gunfights of the highest stress level of fighting for their own lives, you know, um, all of those. But it's this, it's this high stress that is unresolved right? You don't have time to resolve it before you're going to your next call and your next call. And so you find some way to deal with it, which is how we get our very dark humor, you know, uh, and it's our way of laughing. It's our way of dealing with things and talking to people who have been through it. And actually, um, you know, my, my wife who did not come from law enforcement, she noticed something after the first uh, couple of years together at first, she realized how close the police family was and didn't understand why until after watching us through the years that no one else can understand what you're doing, what you've gone through, what you've experienced. So, uh, but that goes to, to your point of these conversations, you know, to be strong in your conversations, which, which sort of leads to your next mission that you've sort of taken on is the PTSD. So what, what started, I guess, you identifying these uh, issues and then to bring to light, uh, trying to bring people together to address this? Well, Dan, um, the reason why what motivated me to write this book was this is a true life story. And it's about my career in law enforcement and how my faith in God has led me into law enforcement in the beginning in calling me later to another calling, which was the ministry. And the stories in the book tell about many threatening situations that I've experienced and how it made my faith even stronger. And it led me to reach out, reach out to others who have experienced in their own traumas by offering help and actually starting a warrior's ministry. So about three years ago when I was going through seminary, to become a minister, it was put in my heart to write this book and with the goal in my heart and desire to open the eyes of others about the trauma that's behind our badges, the trauma that's behind our uniforms. So I made time and I set aside five weeks last summer to write the book. And it took approximately 10 months to get it published. 
And in the book, it's just brutally honest with frontline stories of the most dangerous and the worst situation that others, they just can't comprehend that we're running, we run to these dangers and we, we find us, we find ourselves in the position to help because God is actually answering someone's prayers through us. This book will help police officers in addition to military, firefighters, first responders, and those that are traumatized and also helps their families. And I've become an advocate for PTSD uh, awareness and PTSI awareness and currently a pastor and a minister at Hope and Healing for Warriors uh, and a chaplain for MCSO uh, and Justice Court JP1. And our ministry is for anyone that's been through trauma and it's also for their families. Uh, and you talked a little bit as far as the, the chaplain program. I know that uh, that's grown. I know that uh, the current agency I'm at, we have a chaplain also and, and has assisted. Um, one of the things, and, and you can speak certainly much deeper to it, but one of the things that certainly assisted us is, is we're on scene as detectives. We have a job to do, and uh, which is dealing with evidence in the crime versus dealing with the emotional, spiritual needs of the family, right? So, um, you know, we've had me that responded uh, to that, uh, and I know that that's grown. So how long has the chaplaincy program, I know that they've had this, but this has grown into something huge at, at uh, the JP's office and SO. I know that there's from many faiths and, and many uh, people involved in this. When did, when did all that sort of? Well, to Dan, to tell you a little bit about uh, chaplaincy and how it began, and you know, for generations, uh, chaplains have stood by the sides of men in combat around the world and in the United States, and chaplains are traced all the way back to the battlefields of the American Revolutionary War, and again in the Civil War, the World War One, World War Two, and they're called upon as uh, well during even the Korean War, but you know, little is known about the chaplains of law enforcement unless, of course, you are in law enforcement. And I serve a chaplain at both places, MCSO and JP1, and I'm happy to serve. It's an honor and to serve both the employees and the public when I'm given the opportunity. But I cannot commit comment uh, on anything specific because there's confidentiality sure, of uh, issues, and I'm unable, uh, Dan, to be a spokesman uh, about chaplaincy, but if anyone has specific questions about the program, uh, I need to refer them uh, to the media team at sure. MCSO. But how long you been? how long have you been doing that? Two years. A couple About, of years now? Yeah. Years. Yes, sir. So, and so from that, and obviously, uh, uh, being quiet up to this point, but uh, we have uh, your husband over here. Uh, that um, so from that, y'all created uh, hope and healing for warriors. Correct. Okay. So uh, tell me sort of how that came about and what uh, what that is. Well, actually, we started it almost six years ago. Okay. And I'm a combat veteran, Vietnam, which, like you guys, we didn't get any publicity. They didn't know what we had. They, in fact, most of them didn't like us. Right. you know, for being in that war. So in my own heart, 
I knew we needed to do something for these young guys who were coming home. They're taught to be the best warriors we have, and then they're discarded. And they have issues. Uh, some, you know, they're used to being, their house payments are made, their health benefits are there, and all of a sudden now they have to survive in the world that they haven't been in. Most of them were kids. Right. If you needed something, we issued it to you. Exactly. Right. Exactly correct. And so I felt the need God put on my heart, and you think this wasn't hard, and God does have a sense of humor. Because to me, I was jealous and angry at these kids getting all the publicity that we didn't get. Right. You know, so when God put it on my heart, I said, God, you got to be talking about the wrong person. I'm not the one to do this. Right. And so y'all started this about six years ago. About six years ago. And so um, this is not just uh, veterans, though. No, sir. Right. This, this, uh, who all is it this reach out to? It's police officers, firefighters, first responders. In fact, I do confidential counseling with police officers, as you were talking about, because they don't want the stigma of the PTSD, but they want someone to talk to to get it off their mind, you know, off their chest. And so I have the privilege and honor to deal with some of them. Well, and I even noticed in going through that, um, you know, again, some of the first comments people make is, you know, you talk to people on scene, you have your, your um, you know, deconfliction, decompression, you know, whatever they like to refer to it as, the uh, post-op uh, talk, you know. Uh, but those are all people involved, and sometimes that's, that is good. Um, and most places I know of have their emergency assistance program. But from what I've heard from most people when they go through that, it's maybe a, if there's nothing else, it's a great start of someone to talk to. But usually a person on the other end has no clue, you know, as to experiences or otherwise. I'm, I'm not saying they're not trained professionals and certainly good at their jobs, just that uh, you're not talking to someone who understands or have been there. You're exactly right. Exactly. You know, so... Uh, this this is something different than that, obviously. Um, so, if someone is out there, so what what is the process in being involved uh, with y'all's ministry uh, of uh, hope and healing? We have confidential meetings every Wednesday night, and all are invited, and they can talk and, and say exactly what they feel, and it stays in that room. And there's others there with the same issues, and we have military police officers. We have a battalion chief. Uh, firefighter. I mean, we've got the gamut. Uh, and where does this occur? At Lone Star Cowboy Church. Okay. And now, um, is this Montgomery? Yes, sir. Montgomery. Okay. And <clears throat> so, obviously, uh, you know, this is is geared towards uh, military and law enforcement, fire, you know, all the first responder type thing. Um, as far as um, are y'all dealing with, I guess, the change with, uh, we're dealing with changes in age. You know, we talk millennial, we talk about, you know, the different age groups and whatever. Um, is that represented? I, I guess, you know, in other words, you got this young guy coming in uh, that's going to go, well, he doesn't know anything. He's just this old person, right? You know, um, do, you know, is there a gamut, I guess, of, of resources? Well, there is, and, you know, we happen to be on the board of Tri-County Advisory Board, Mental Health, and so we have a lot of help from there. But to address your one point there, it is they do look at this as the old guy, but when they sit down and talk to you, they know you know what you're talking about. You've been there, you've done that, just like with police officers. 
So they seem to open up after a while. Sometimes it takes a little while to make that connection. But not only are we limited to police officers, firefighters, and military, we have women that have gone through the same thing my wife has gone through. We have childhood problems and issues that they've gone through. So we're not just limited. I mean, we've opened it up, and God has blessed us with this ministry to, to be quite large. And it just opened up doors in every direction. Well, and, and so, Janet, just speaking to some some current issues in law enforcement, you know, and one you sort of sort of address as far as uh, uh, we're losing a lot of people to retirement. We're losing a lot of people, and um, uh, people are not busting down the door uh, to become police officers right now. Um, I, I think that that's very. Um, uh, specific to areas. I mean, obviously, we, we see a, a national media that is there to get attention, right? I mean, whatever, you know, if, you know, if it can get a click, if it can get a headline or whatever, that's more sensationalized. Um, and we see a lot of those places up north that are having severe problems. Um, I don't see the same problems here, but we see the same, I guess, uh, issues with people wanting to be cops. So you know, you got just as much time as I do in law enforcement. What what are you? What are your thoughts on? I guess solving that, reaching out, or, or somehow getting getting people in interested well, in law enforcement. Well, you know, um, Dan, I am so thankful that I live in Montgomery County and I'm in Texas, and but specifically in Montgomery County, uh, and working in law enforcement here. And you know we're 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 different here. Uh, it is a, a group that is premier. And you know, uh, in law enforcement, you know, we got into law enforcement to protect and to help everyone. And we're we're trying to maintain this persona of being, you know, the protector. And there's a lot of times that we don't want to admit that things that bother us. And and so, you know, um, we need to. Uh, progress along in our career from the going from call to call to call and in uh, to where we can talk to someone and so what's happening that I, that I can see in law enforcement in our area is is there's there's more and more chaplains that are coming in to help others to help law enforcement and so uh, and also you know um, People used to think that they they just didn't have anyone to talk to in law enforcement, and where do they turn? What are they going to do? And that it, it is a sign of being strong. It's not a sign of being weak to call out for help. And so, and, and now in law enforcement, there's also uh, the buddy check systems, so that you know there's there's others, whether it's it's someone that you're you're working directly with or a chaplain, where you know you can you can reach out and, and, and others will talk to you and say, well, you know, how's your day going? And uh, is there anything too heavy for you? And, and what kind of calls are you going on? And, and so, uh, uh, you know, um, I, I feel like that there is um, a lot of people that are retiring across the nation out of law enforcement. But uh, what I can see is there's also men and women that are being drawn into law enforcement as well even you know, during this times the one thing that um, I sort of find odd and I'm, I'm hoping that it, it sort of changes or, or maybe your thoughts on it is there are only two things I know of 
uh, if you're involved in a shooting, you have to go talk to somebody. And if you work uh, child sex crimes, uh, you have a yearly psychological checkup also if you're dealing with child porn and things like that. But those are the only two things I know that are pretty standard in our industry that if those two things happen, then you're mandate. You're going to go talk to somebody, right? Uh, but it seems to be missing a whole lot of other things uh, that go on. And I think that when there is a, a big event, um, they'll usually have uh, a gathering, you know, just a, a post-gathering to sort of discuss the event. Uh, but I don't think it really occurs that often or as much to all the other I wouldn't say small, but but events that that uh, you know. Do you think it has come to a point that it should be general practice that there's just this mental health, you know, wellness check-in, whether it's yearly, whether it's a couple years or whatever. Absolutely, Dan, and you know, uh, I've seen men and women die from everything imaginable by automobile accidents where they were in pieces, where others have been murdered. I've seen people in stages after death and in the sites that we see. The things that I've experienced and been exposed to on the job, they're not special. There's so many out there that are suffering. They're suffering in silence because they're afraid to ask for help. And even when you think you have had an idea of what in law enforcement that you're going to see or what you're going to do, you still are not totally prepared. And trauma, trauma, Dan, changes our lives. And you pay a price. You may put up walls to keep yourself from going crazy. You may learn that you cannot give in and display your emotions because you're in law enforcement. And as difficult as this job can be at times, it's all worth it in the end when we're getting to have a part of helping others and making the, com the community a safer place. No matter how hard it gets, this job is, is a rewarding career. And, you know, yes, I'm absolutely honored to be in the ministry, to be in chaplaincy, and to help and encourage and support warriors to find strength to make con connections to change their lives. But you know, they don't need to suffer in silence. They, there's, there's people that can help if they call out. You know, I think that, uh, you know, two things is, is one, there, there's the old adage of uh, you being felt as though you're weak for coming, right? But, I, you know, I think there's another one that sort of gets uh, ignored, and that is we sometimes think or we feel as though, oh, well, everybody understands that everybody's doing the same job. Right, and uh, you know, one um, example sort of sticks out to me on how unaware we are that everybody is going through the same thing. Is uh, I was in a class uh, with Colonel Grossman um, uh, speaking, and he didn't exercise. And, and there's everybody in this class from from county, city, state, and, and everybody uh, dealing in law enforcement. There's at least three, four hundred in the class. And he had everybody close their eyes, and he said. Raise your hand if you've ever had a dream where you are trying to shoot somebody and you are not hitting them or your gun's not going off or whatever. So raise your hand. Said, now, keep your hands raised and open your eyes. 
every single person in that room, everyone has their hand up. And again, it was just that reminder that everyone is experiencing the same thing, but we don't realize it. Mm-hmm. You know, we may know that we're going call to call to call, but you don't realize that they're feeling the same way. They're having the same dreams. They're having the same nightmares. Okay. Uh, and I think acknowledging not just that we do the same job, but that I, I don't know another way to put it, but this is normal, right? I mean, this, this is the normal consequence of the job that you're doing. Absolutely. Right. So, uh, getting them to understand that part that, I mean, I don't know where to put it, but you're not special. You're not unique. Okay. I mean, it's, this is everybody who decides to do this. Um, the, the one who I guess is, is unique is the one who doesn't have this and I have yet to find them. Okay. If I do, I'm more concerned about them being like a psychopath with, uh, no, no emotion and no impact on their life or whatever. Uh, but, um, I think that's a very hard message to get across, um, unless you talk, you know, unless you're sharing those experiences, uh, that these are things I'm thinking about. These are things that bother me. These are dreams I'm having. These are issues that, you know, uh, you do think you're alone. You think you're paranoid when it comes to your kids. You think that, you know, the nightmares you're having is just because of this one incident. Then you talk to others and realize, nope, this is, this is a, a normal part of the job. You know, I hate to say it as that, but that's what it comes down to. Right. You know, um, so with, um, again, sort of getting back to y'all's solution for this, right, and, and what y'all combined. Um, so where do you see, I guess, the next steps uh, of your ministry or of hope and healing or, or something beyond hope and healing? What do you see? Well, our goals are about providing an avenue for individual individuals that have trauma uh, to have someone to reach out to a lot of people think that they do not have anyone to talk to and where are they going to turn uh, when they don't want to talk to think that, that others may think they're weak and so you know PTSD isn't about what's wrong with you it's about what happened to you and at Hope and Healing for Warriors we encourage and we support warriors to find strength to make those connections that will change their lives and our ministry is not only one that's very unique, but one that most desperate, it's mostly desperately needed, especially in today's world with all that's going on. And these are dangerous times, and officers feel that, that it's dangerous times. And so all three of the pastors, there's one that's not here, Tom Ramey, um, we're all board certified mental health coaches. Um, behavior court uh, coaches in uh, Tri-County Military Peer Network and um, my husband also has a uh, PTSI certificate. So we want to let others out there know you're not alone. No one is ever too broken or too scared or too far gone to, to go through the change. Never stop fighting. Don't lose your fight. There's someone here to help, and we're so happy to be here to help. So, 
Uh, you referred to PTSD, and that's pretty common. People know. So explain uh, PTSI. It's a new, for the family side of it, you know, like you said, your wife finally noticed a change a couple of years later. A lot of them find the, the change, and they have compound PTSD, which is they picked up the same thing, only it's from being around you. And so they don't know how to handle it. So that's how we've taken in the families to try to help them. So where do you see, so obviously y'all are, y'all are in Montgomery. Yes, sir. Sort of taking care of this area. So how do we get it beyond Montgomery? That's a good question. We've been looking at that. We've been asked to open a place in Dallas. Uh, again, it's, it's finding the right people. The, the, the key to PTSD is someone to listen. Sure. You know, and that's a hard thing to find and someone that can actually relate. And so we're not quite ready to the point where we can go look for somebody else to do it. So we're going to try to expand. We have done some Zoom and had them in our classes. Uh, so we really don't know to answer your question exactly how we're going to expand it. You know you want to get there. Just, yes, sir. Just not, not sure how we're going to accomplish that yet, right? Exactly, yes, sir. We're, we're getting calls from all over the United States, from everywhere, uh, for help. So people are finding us. Well, and it's, it's uh, obviously impactful uh, that I'm sure uh, as confidential as it is, the one thing I've learned is that when people do receive help, um, many want to share that they're feeling better, mm -hmm. right? And when they share that story, then that obviously uh, is a built-in message for y'all in, in expanding those things, right? Um, so if someone wants to help, uh, if someone wants to get in touch with y'all for where, how do they get in touch with you besides just showing up on a Wednesday night? We've got a web page. Okay, what's the webpage? www.hopeandhealingforwarriors.com. Okay, and you have uh, uh, emails on there, contacts yes, on there. All the information's on so, there. And uh, Janet's on Facebook, as you know, so it's all the information's on Facebook also. Yep, and uh, so if you want to find uh, information, you can go to the website. And then also, by all means, uh, we have the book, The Bible and the Badges, Blessed are the Peacemakers. Uh, just came out just a couple weeks ago. Uh, and I know you can find it on Amazon. That's where I bought mine. Uh, so uh, you can go and check that out. And It's actually at all bookstores now. It is, it is hit the bookstore. See, I, I try to just have stuff delivered to the house. I, I don't. Uh, uh, it's an e-book also. So uh, there, any place you find a book, you should be able to find this book. So, um, well, Janet, I appreciate you being here. And yes, sir, Ray, I appreciate uh, you being here. Thank you all so much for sharing your story. Thank you for writing your book uh, and certainly for the continued work that y'all are doing for, for all the first responders out there uh, and uh, sharing all your experiences to help them along the way. So 